0: You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.
1: This is the fourth SEI podcast arising out of a two day event we hosted in July here at the University of Sydney. It was called The Reemergence of Nature in Culture. We had an opportunity for scholars from multiple different disciplines, primarily Indigenous scholars, to discuss the entanglements of nature and culture in their work and in the philosophies and life ways of their peoples. And today we're extraordinarily lucky to have Jess Passisi from uh, Waikato University, where she's a teaching fellow. Waikato University is in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and most excitingly about Jess, she's just recently submitted her PhD. Her research for her PhD is what we'll be talking about today. Jess is of Nui and Mutulau Palangi, or European descent. She was born in Aotearoa and raised in the Waikato. Her research relates to the cultural practices, knowledge and lived experience of Nuaean people in relation to climate change. So welcome, Jess. It's very exciting to have you here. And this is our first interview that's occurred across the seas. We've done some across the nation, but this is the first one across the seas. So, as I say, welcome. In your biography, which I've just recited... You locate yourself first by your heritage and then by the location of your childhood. And in your presentation at the conference, you spoke of your responses to arriving in Nui and then separately of stepping into Australia for the first time. What I'd really, really appreciate if you could talk to us about the differences of those experience and how the sense of space ends up informing your research.
0: Whakala uh, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess I grew up in the Waikato, so I kind of uh, didn't realise I was Niuean for for quite a significant chunk of my childhood. And when it came into play, it was something that, you know, would differentiate me from the other brown kids, I guess. So it kind of felt like a superpower where I could be like, No, I'm not Māori, I'm Niuean and, you know, no one knew where that was. So it was kind of, you know, this great, you know, unknown to me and space where I could, you know, create up all these, you know, uh, all these different stories about what what Niue was or uh, where it was and, and what it meant for me. So that was an interesting time. And then getting older, there's a kind of responsibility and weight that comes with learning your culture. So as I started doing my PhD research, that was when I really came to grips with what it meant to be Nguyen. And um, yeah, going to Nguyen for the first time was really surreal. I, I remember I took my dad, I took both my parents, but my dad is Nguyen. So I was his first, the first of his kids to want to go to his homeland with him. And I'm probably the first of of all of us kids to actually show any interest in his heritage um, to this kind of degree. Um, So it's taken a lot of convincing. and, And I have a lot of debates with my dad about, you know, why Niue is important. Because in a lot of ways, to assimilate into the dominant Western perspectives or society in New Zealand... You really have to push away uh, from a lot of those kind of cultural connections. So I have to convince my dad that, you know, Niue is valuable. Even though I think he already knows it, he just wants me to show that it's going to be kind of worthwhile for him to, to talk about those things and actually to bring up a lot of those um, ancestral and cultural connections that were essentially kind of beaten out of a lot of his generation so all of those things kind of culminated in our first trip and I remember you know my dad saying on the plane like I don't even speak Niuean anymore like I'm a moldy by now so and then we get off the plane and and all of a sudden he's he's, you know, yapping away in Nguyen and, and all you know, he's gone to find the coconut tree and he's taking us on, on Oonga hunts and all of these things from, from his own childhood, which, you know, have just been sitting there for a really long time. So that made that particular connection and, and, and first trip really memorable for me. And I guess in a lot of ways, it kind of sets me up for thinking about my own place and my own body when I go into into different countries now a little more carefully and I think that's what happened when I um, came to Australia for the first time for this conference of all the things to come to Australia for but in order to think about what it means to be a new way in to come to new a- uh, to Australia as a first time kind of thing and I think just in Gadigal country and, and with the people of your Nation surrounding us, it just kind of blew my mind. And um, Aboriginal culture dwarfs Niuean culture in a lot of ways in terms of the kind of length of history um, and the, like, I, I think not in a bad way, though. It's kind of like to be in the presence of such ancestry and um, such history is still a really incredible thing for me as as a young Newayan, as a young Newayan um, coming into her own culture and learning more about it. And I think there's that thing of when you when you start to push colonial powers off the frame or off the table, you start to realise these connections to Indigenous people who who share the same ocean and. There's a richness and beauty in those relationships that we we don't get to talk about enough.
1: Thank you very much. That's really, really interesting. It's really interesting to think about um, pushing the colonial off the table and very few of us talk about that possibility of pushing the colonial off the table. Um, I like that phrase. It's one I might... (laughs) I might pinch from you going forward. It's absolutely beautiful, and yes, we forget. I think oftentimes that we share this ocean, uh, the connections between people and and our our ocean, um, our ocean kin. So, your work is very is very grounded in the Nuuan bark cloth, you say you use it as a metaphor, as a culturally imbued way of privileging Nuean knowledge and Nuean women and Nuean culture. So this informs your methodologies. In a sense, what you're saying, I think, picking up from, from this last little bit of our conversation is you're putting, pushing the colonial away in, in your research methodology. So, of course, the colonial is is integral to mes- research methodology. The, the positivist methodology is the one that we are taught. So, these model- models have been challenged by Wa- Waikato University over many decades. Well, over the last two, particularly by Linda Tuhiwai Smith. Can you discuss the process of the design of your method and how that inf- influenced both your research and your method, and your uh, sorry your writing?
0: <laughs> it just trips me out a little bit to be in the same breath as Linda Tuliwais-Smith. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Um, but, yeah, we definitely have a, a strong group of Māori women, Māori academics at this university, uh, and I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by um, people like Alice Te punga as well um, from the Faculty of Māori and Indigenous Studies. Um, and they all just keep pushing me, keep, you know, really um, providing that mentorship, um, especially as a young u n there's not always lots of new academics at, at different in different places though we are out there um, we're we're kind of well dispersed so it's it's really nice to be in a nurturing space about my methodology honestly um I was a bit of a nightmare for my first two supervisors who were Polynesian women, who for over a year just made me rewrite my proposal. Um, part, of, part of the reason for that, uh, or part of why that kept happening, was because all of these kind of positivist models that you're talking about, you know, just don't work in the UN context and with what I was trying to do. So I had bits of tourism and hospitality and um, even some feminist theory that, they were really pushing that, really just weren't working, and I didn't necessarily, you know, over that year know how to how to vocalise that, I guess, um, or even how to to write about that because, you know, as a young researcher, you're trying to figure things out, and you think, you know, from your supervisors, you'll get, you know, the vision of how to 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 start your research off. Um, but I was, you know, I'm heading in such a different direction. And it wasn't until I met Alice where, you know, I guess she she recognized and pushed me towards thinking about how maybe it, it could happen in a different way. And so I kind of got pushed to just explore what it meant to be Nguyen first and and actually just have conversations with women where I didn't have to try and think about how I was I guess in some ways, putting a frame on um, what it, what I was doing, um, so just having those real conversations and, and building the relationships, and from there, I kind of would talk to women and then come come back to to the place I was living and and write about you know how this would work into a methodology. So I kind of did it a bit backwards, I guess, in the in the grand scheme of of writing. But the, the methodology itself ended up being based on the metaphor of hiapu, which is, um, as you say, the, the Niuean bark cloth or tapa. And um, the process of making that has really specific implications for me as a Niuean woman to then be able to think really carefully uh, about the place of Niue culture and how it informs how I talked with Newayan women, and how I um, understand what they're sharing with me—not necessarily as a as a frame, but as a as a picture that is um, heavily imbued with Newayan culture and context and time. So it's specific to the time that we shared together. But it has these like really great cultural underpinnings of being able to understand and and acknowledge culture when and where it's relevant.
1: So, is it something that you can see that you will continue to apply as you take your research forward, or was it? Is it a methodology that is specific to that particular research project?
0: Uh, definitely um, something that you can and. Uh, can and should take forward like it's a it's a kind of evolving space so there's a kind of set structure I guess or kind of key pieces to a hiapo but the way that's interpreted can you know the it's really open and, and flexible which is why I liked it in the first place because it means you can, can go into all of these different creative spaces and engage with um, conversations and culture which is definitely, you know, that's relevant in, in all spaces of Nguyen research.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's wonderful. And is it something that you think other people could adopt?
0: For sure. I mean, it's underpinned or um, connected with, uh, you know, a really strong body of Pacific research methodologies. So thinking about um, things like talanoa and Tuikukala and um, Masi methodology, all of these different things are um, particularly... Masi methodology and the Cook Island Tuvai methodology; those were both really strong in helping to inform the kind of uh, methodology that I developed. Terrific, terrific. So, you describe having to
1: completely rethink your research once you arrived in Niue. So, you partly you've you've talked about that, but what was it that you had set up to discover and how was that reoriented when you got there?
0: Well, um, you know, I was looking i was looking for cl- climate change problems and thinking I'd find, you know, super panicked people who thought the sea was going to sink them. Or, but I think my first lo- lot of supervisors had me out uh, also looking for climate refugees from Niue, which is uh, a little bit awkward because... <laughs> way has free association with New Zealand so people move in much more fluid and different ways compared to other parts of the Pacific also niue is a raised atoll so you know the rising sea levels do have some impact but not in the same way that they do for um, people from Tuvalu or Kiribati so I kind of had to you know have people essentially laugh at me be like what do you mean? you know, we're not sinking, Uh, and then, you know, reorient uh, in terms of, you know, what was I looking for, what kind of conversations could I have about climate change in Niue that didn't involve me predetermining what climate change was in the first place.
1: And so what is climate change to them?
0: Um, I guess it's not, uh, there's not... To me, it's not a hard and fast. There's not a single definition of climate change. And, and, you know, all of the women that I talk to, you know, none of them are claiming to have, you know, a, a perfect definition of climate change. M- most of them would actually shy, well, not necessarily shy away, like some are really clear and specific about what they think it is. But there's not a, a definition that covers what all the women that I talked with thought climate change was um, and I think that's really important to consider as well because you know the idea of having to define things in really specific ways it has consequences for the kinds of conversations that you can have as well and defining defining things in really you know well categorized labeled thing that's pretty colonial so um, it's interesting to try and push away from that And at the same time, be doing a PhD thesis where, you know, people like to see definitions.
1: Sure. Well, well done for navigating it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, we'll just come back to this. So the the implications of climate change uh, in Nui were central to your research. And of course, here in Australia, we've got this raging debate about should we mitigate emissions to reduce changes to climate change? And how do we adapt to the inevitable locked-in changes? And who should bear the benefits and the burdens of these changes? And I recall that those weren't the discussions that you ended having up. So, Can we talk a little bit about what their focus is, what the the women's focus was, and maybe a range of the foci, as you've said. Not everybody has the same response or considers climate change is going to impact their lives in the same way. And then furthermore, how do you interpret their expression as, as part of a resistance to colonial ideologies?
0: I guess the women I talked with were really clear that their views were their own, so not necessarily representative of all women in Niue, and and I know I've just mentioned that, but it's a really important starting point, I think. Um, So for the women who did share with me, many focused on uh, language and the transmission of cultural knowledge. That wasn't to say that climate change didn't matter but more the issues around language and the ability of elders to pass on knowledge to younger generations needed a particular attention. And sometimes this like seemed to diverge from climate change as uh, kind of a Western concept. And other times it would kind of we- have ways of weaving back in. So I met a lot of women who were, you know, super engaged with climate change action from, creating village plans, um, village action, climate action plans, or, um, you know, a lot of them attend a lot of the climate workshops that um, are run by consultants or by the meteorology office. But then there's also these kinds of ideas that some of them talk about it as a kind of promotion, like climate change, the, the way that it's framed to them feels just like, I guess marketing, so something that comes out and people have to either jump on the bandwagon or not and, and then, you know, there are particular labels that come with whether you do or don't jump on the bandwagon and they're not necessarily into any of that. Some of them are just like, no, you can get lost, scientists. And I, I use scientists as a really loose term that, you know they have specific connotations of what scientists are in a in a Western sense, not necessarily that you know it's not ne- that we don't have scientists in in New Year or anything like that. So those are some really interesting dynamics to play with in, in the start of of thinking about climate change. But in these stories, in the stories of people thinking about their their mothers and their grandmothers and their you know, great grandmothers and how they would cook without electricity and how they would survive off very little, those conversations tend to have these really strong and important connections with or are contradicted or contrasted against ideas of consumerism and advances or so-called advances in technology. And it's not about getting rid of those and returning to you know, no electricity, but about thinking of how we balance and navigate in these changing times. So it's not just that the climate changes, but that there are changes across all aspects of life and how they talk about those in the stories that they, you know, share can be really important for how they are connecting with climate change in a a broader sense.
1: That sounds to me like, the threat of the threat, the Western threat of climate change, the Western dialogue around threat of climate change, is being recast as an opportunity to for a reassessment and for a um, the creation, I guess, of or the recreation or the maintenance of really strong culture and a New in way. And way of both being and of responding. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of importance in thinking about, um, you know, as you're saying, kind of the maintenance or strengthening of culture. For Nguyen's in particular, there's, you know, we've got a large diaspora, so there's, um, you know, other issues or pressures in terms of connecting with culture and, and understanding and shaping identity, that means that in order to have conversations about climate change or even just think about climate change action, you actually need to be addressing these things around language and culture before you are able to have those kinds of conversations. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely, culture and language, those were really strong key points that came through a lot of the, the stories of, of the women I talked with.
1: Mm, so it's multiple entanglements that aren't caught by the positivist risk management approach. Mm. I'm getting a nod for the audience. I'm getting a nod from <laughs> Jess on that. <laughs> okay, so you were specifically focused on her stories on the on the stories
0: of the women. Why was that
1: focus important to you?
0: Um, I guess first and foremost, I mean, I'm a New Ayan woman, so it kind of makes sense for for me to focus on women's stories. There are particular cultural expectations. Uh, between men and women and and things that aren't shared from men to women so it takes a lot more to build those relationships and even you know people can spend their whole lives and and not actually have like a relationship where knowledge is shared from men to women there are just some things in ua culture that are sacred to, to gender there's another part though that you know more broadly, women are often sidelined in a lot of these conversations. And certainly in literature, sometimes there are cultural protocols that need to be observed. But often I find that it's assumed that men will do the talking and therefore do do the talking. But we know from our ancestral narratives that Nguyen women were and are fierce leaders and capable of providing security for their family and for the country and you know, beyond that. So, um, you know, it was important for me to actually start having more of these conversations about the woman in my own life and uh, the woman that I was meeting, because, you know, recognising that there is, you know, they have a certain type, a certain mana is, is really important in this research space. So, yeah, I guess it's something that, you know, I really hope that my grandmother and kind of all of my new AM women ancestors would be be proud of me doing.
1: That's wonderful. I'm sure they would be, Jess. I'm sure they would be, so I'm sure your family are. So I wonder if there's any questions I haven't asked you about your research and your findings that you'd like to share.
0: Nope. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs>
1: I just don't want to leave a big void somewhere and think that in my complete and utter ignorance I've left something out. <laughs> no, that's great. So what next for you, Jess? Clearly you're still waiting for your mark, your your results, but what next do you think?
0: You know, my immediate thought is like, oh, dinner, because it's dinner time. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> idea. Uh, but after dinner mm. and after hopefully I'll, yeah, I'll get the, my results back from my PhD and I'm actually really excited about my oral exam and, and being able to have that conversation with my examiners. And really um, the biggest focus for me then is to to disseminate and take this research back to Niue. So, you know, it's really common. Uh, for research to be done in Niue and then taken outside of Niue and never taken back so I I really really want to make sure that you know well embedded in my research says that I have to go back and have to you know um, be respectful of the relationships that I've made so that will be my thing. So I'm going back in December. So hopefully my exam results will be back in by December. Otherwise, I'll just be having a nice holiday and some more chats in Niue. Um But yeah, definitely more, more Neway and research for me. Fantastic.
1: What does taking it back look like? How will you take the research back to your community?
0: Um, so there's a couple of ways. It's not as straightforward as just taking, you know, a big printout of uh, A4 paper and, and, and lumping it on them.
1: Mm, that's what I rather thought.
0: <laughs> but there is a sense that um, you know physical things are important. So you know, on the one side, we're we're very how do you say like aware or conscious of our environmental footprint. But then on the other hand, there's something in Nui in particular, where actually building up that physical library is, I think, really important. Because although we can do online and digital spaces, I I just think that there are important conversations that come from being able to give people something not a full thesis because i don't think that's necessarily entirely relevant or accessible for people but perhaps in a book form being able to give them that physical thing that they can take away and you know read in their own time or dissect in their own time and then come back with questions Um, and come back with critique I'm so so excited for critique of my work because although on one hand it's crippling and I am very (laughs) aware of what I'm writing all the time and never wanted to hand it in to my supervisors because I just didn't think it was quite right there's something about being critical that that really needs to be fostered for our new way in literature because there's lots of people who have written about new air and they've written not great things. and I'm sure there's going to be mistakes in my own work, but I want to be able to have the conversation so that I learn from that and that there is a culture that develops of, of people being able to be critical of this work, of this body of work, because I think that that's a really important part for progressing um, kind of new in voice and new in control of the narrative.
1: Mm, Fantastic So will you use Some of the hiapo On your book Would you bind it
0: with that Actually I've um, So I There's this great hiapo Artist Cora Ellen Wycliffe Who is Kind of we're going to do some Work together but she's actually offered To make A hiapo based on my thesis So That could be incredibly amazing. So if that comes through, then I'll know I've really made it.
1: (laughs) What a wonderful physical representation in a culturally appropriate and different way. What an extraordinary legacy for you to leave. Yeah. And for her to leave, how very honoured you must feel.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm excited and... Yeah, all of this kind of these new and connections that I can make are, are just you know really they're really positive for me and 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 for the kind of work that I want to be doing for for the new and community
1: so you'll stay in the academy to do that
0: uh yes largely i guess for a lot of pacific academics though you know we dabble a bit which is is kind of nice and I think there's always space space for that. But largely, I think a lot of the contribution that I can be making is is in the academic space. There's a lot more work to be done. So, you know, if I can help in any small way, then, then I'll be happy.
1: That's wonderful. Jess, thank you very much for giving us your time this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to talk to you again. You're wonderful at the conference and it's wonderful to talk again. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Christine and Eloise and uh, Jacob. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks very much, Jess. You have a good dinner. You do. <laughs> it's, it's a way off here. You're two hours ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you. Bye. Bye.